Okay, there we go. So I, I'm sorry that I forgot to press record for the second half of the class. Um, if anybody wasn't able to make class last time or has questions arising and would like to talk about the cases we talked about in the second half of class, um, certainly we can do so. You know, fortunately, a good chunk of what we did in the second half of class was watch that Supreme Court of Canada submission, and of course, you can look at that again on your own time. Uh, so hopefully, I won't forget to record again, um, but my apologies for that last time. Um, I still haven't set the instructions for the optional written assignment. I woke up this morning feeling bad about that, but I, I will try to do it for Friday. Uh, my apologies for being later than expected on that. Um, are there any questions or you know, either about the material from last class or of a more administrative nature at the outset? All right, if not, let's get into one of the sort of two tentpole subjects of administrative law, procedural fairness. We're going to spend the next uh, four classes on this subject. We're going to get deeply into it. And at the outset, I want to remind us all how it fits in that broader um, you know, separation of powers, executive, judiciary, legislature framework that I put up at the outset of the course. And you want to remember that when the executive gets its powers from the legislature, the courts presume the legislature did not entitle and did not authorize you the executive to wield those powers unfairly. That's the fundamental theory of what we're doing. And so, if you wield those powers unfairly, the theory goes you have exceeded your jurisdiction, right? I never authorized you to make unfair uh, decisions based on an unfair process. I never authorized that. So if you do it, it can't stand. It's outside of jurisdiction. And just so we're all on the same page, of course, when we're talking about procedural fairness, we are talking about process, not outcome. I'm not concerned with whether you fairly balance the rights at issue or you fairly consider the substance of the case. I'm just concerned with the process used to come to the place of arriving at that decision. Was the process fair? So fairly simple framing, but it gets infinitely complex in the application. And that is because what is going to be required in any circumstance to satisfy the requirement of fairness is context-dependent, flexible, variable. Different people see it in different ways. It can be hard to predict the minimum standards a court will find that fairness requires. In some circumstances, for example, if you don't hold an oral hearing, the decision cannot stand. That's seen as unfair. In other circumstances, an oral hearing is absolutely unnecessary. And in fact, if a tribunal were to start trying to hold oral hearings, that might compromise fairness. And I'll explain how that might be in a second, that sort of counterintuitive idea. 
So flexible, context-dependent, and sometimes hard to predict are all characterizing, or ways to characterize, describe the law around procedural fairness. But another interesting way to characterize the law around procedural fairness is remarkably stable. This is in stark contrast to the law on substantive judicial review, which undergoes these rethinkings every 10 years or so, where the court tries to reimagine how you're going to you know, review the substance of an administrative decision. Dan Samir Babilov, these cases that we're coming to next in our, our next segment. Procedural fairness, on the other hand, the framework was articulated in the Baker case, and it has never been changed since then. Baker is one of the uh, most important cases in administrative law. I would extend that even farther into any sort of public law framework. Baker is one of the most important cases. It has stood the test of time, and by all indications, it will continue to stand the test of time. And this is a bit of an aside, but, and a bit of amusing on my part, but it may be worth asking or pondering, well, why is the procedural fairness context been so stable while the substantive review context approach has been so wildly swinging this way and that? And I think it's because the substantive review, as I've hinted at a few times, um, can be looked at in very different ways depending on your worldview and your conception of the law. Do you think that there has to be, at least in theory, a right answer to a legal problem? And do you feel deeply unsettled by the idea that a judge is going to disagree with an interpretation of the law but apply it anyways? Or do you think that we need to get these decisions out of the realm of the very expensive and process-driven courts and into more accessible administrative tribunals. And the cost of doing that is to afford some deference and flexibility in how they apply the law. That's the fundamental dispute on the substantive side. And people can feel very passionately on one side or the other. On the procedural fairness side, though, we all agree that we should be fair. We all agree that if we're going to have tribunals, you know, even if you're a strong, dicey supporter and you say, I don't like tribunals, minimize them as much as possible, even if you have that worldview, you would at least accept that when we have a tribunal, it better act fairly. So there's not this underlying core, you know, philosophical disagreement that's being fought out in procedural fairness in the same way that there is in substantive review. So there has been this stability which makes it in some ways easier to uh, study, but still there is a lot of nuance, a lot of context-dependent factors to get your head around, and there still is a, um, a difficulty around predictability. If, if a client comes in and says, hey, I, I had a workers' compensation dispute and I was denied an oral hearing, um, am I gonna get a, uh, a remedy for that? You know, I wish I could say yes, or I wish I could say no, go away, don't even try. 
But the answer is, well, it depends. There's about you know, 10 different factors and there's about 100 different cases that go both ways on this issue of when is an oral hearing required in a workers' compensation context. I had a, a case where a person came in and you know, WCB, the Workers' Compensation Board, had sent a, uh, an investigator, undercover investigator, to trail them to watch him work at Superstore where he was slicing meat. And they said, well, you said your shoulder is uh, not working, but we saw you working the slicer. And he says, well, I wanted an oral hearing to explain that I had to like, contort myself in this weird way to get into an angle where I could slice the meat. And this has led to like, pain throughout my body and I can't continue like this and I need to have some compensation. But he was denied an oral hearing. So is he entitled to an oral hearing to make that case? to the decision maker, you know, time will tell. That's a judicial review that we'll be running next year. So stable in the sense that the general framework uh, hasn't changed since Baker, but unpredictable in that there are so many context-dependent factors, it's hard for us to anticipate exactly what the minimal standards will require unless there's a very on-point precedent. So with that sort of introduction to the area, I want to talk a bit about you know, what is fairness. Um, and that certainly doesn't admit of an easy answer. And to understand if something was fair, you know, you would just, I think you would intuitively know and agree that if somebody comes and says, I was treated unfairly, well, you're gonna have a lot of questions. Right? You're going to have to know, know more about that person, know more about the issue, know more about the dispute, know more about the person who decided the dispute, know more about how the person's going to be affected by the dispute. There's a lot of things that naturally come into play when we're asking ourselves, were you treated fairly in these circumstances? And so the nature of the question, I think, leads to this contextual framework, this multi-factor analysis that Baker has. When you have a multi-factor analysis, inevitably you run into that problem of, well, how do you weigh the different factors against each other, right? And if you have to weigh factors, one person's gonna see one factor is more important than another, whereas a different person might see it vice versa. So, Fairness, tricky question, but let's think about what are the rights that you might be claiming. Like, let's take a step back. What are we even talking about here? What we're talking about is if you go to an administrative tribunal, what procedural rights are they going to afford you? And it runs a spectrum. At the bare minimum, the far end of the spectrum, the minimal fairness. You want to think a right to know that a decision is going to be made, i.e. notice, and some opportunity to present your view to the decision maker. Most likely through submitting a letter or evidence or something like that. 
But if you leave that minimum, just know about it and have some opportunity to participate in fairness, the rights that you may claim, they just expand and expand and expand across the spectrum. The next one over, the next, the next right you might be looking for, would be a right to know the evidence and the case that's going to be heard. Some kind of disclosure of the case to meet. But then you might say, well, I, I don't want to just know the case to meet. I, I want a chance to um, demand further documents. I want a chance for, in, in essence, discovery, like you get in a civil con in a civil litigation or criminal litigation. A chance to ask for more. I, I might want a chance to make oral argument at the hearing. I might want a chance to give evidence under oath. I might want a chance to call witnesses. I might want a chance to cross-examine the witnesses that are called by the other side. I might want a right to be represented by counsel. I might need time to prepare. I might say, I can't do this in a week. You've got to give me three months to get ready for this hearing. I might want more time to make oral submissions. The court may say, or the tribunal may say, okay, you get, you get 10 minutes. Well, that's not enough, I need a day. You know, the, these are the sorts of things we're talking about. These are the sorts of rights that you might demand from a tribunal. And these are the sorts of rights the court may say are necessary for a fair hearing. And as we'll get to in a second, if they're not provided, the court may say, this decision cannot stand no matter how reasonable on its face it looks. No matter how much the substance of the decision looks reasonable, we might say it cannot stand because you didn't give these procedural rights. So you have a sense as to the different things that you may want before an administrative tribunal. But there is a tension, there's a fundamental tension between affording these rights and deciding these cases in a reasonably quick and efficient manner. So if you start providing unnecessary, excessive procedural rights, you may undermine the entire project of your tribunal. And this may resonate to lead to an unfair result in substance or process for the other side. So to take an example that I keep coming back to because it's a tribunal that some people are familiar with and some people may become familiar with, with the residential tenancy branch. Their um, procedural fairness rights that they afford generally are they give you 
notice of the case to meet. You have to provide your evidence um, two weeks in advance if you're the uh, party applying for relief. And they give you an oral hearing. That oral hearing is conducted over the phone. And it lasts exactly one hour. There's some discretion to extend it, but the guidance given to tribunal members is don't extend your hearings, get them done in an hour. So from the perspective of, you know, let's say I represent a tenant who is facing an eviction. I get my material together, I submit it, the landlord submits their responding material seven days before the hearing. They may or may not include an outline of their argument. They don't have to. They don't have to tell me what they're going to argue. Then you go to the hearing. Quite often, the first 15 or 20 minutes is taken up with the adjudicator um, trying to settle the dispute, saying, can we come to an agreement here? If not, OK, and now I need to hear your submissions, but we have 40 minutes left. So, you know, Mr. Pulleyblank, you'll have 15 minutes, then the other side will have 20 minutes, and you'll have five minutes for reply. 15 minutes can, you know, sound like a lot. It goes quick. I've been talking for 20 minutes today already, and I'm like right there in my notes. You know, it's really easy to, uh, to fill that time, to not get to the point. And so you may say, I never had a chance to even get my, my point across. So let's reform it. Let's have a big challenge. Let's have the court declare, all right, we need a lot more rights at the residential tenancy branch because we need, um, these are so important, you know, eviction, you're being sent to potentially be homeless. What's more important to your security than your house or your home? Your children go to school, they're going to get ripped from their class and have to go somewhere else. You know, these are, these are core fundamental rights. So let's give, um, let's require that the written, there be full written submissions um, be submitted and then you get a full 45 days to respond, another 40, you know, 30 days for a reply. We'll have one day hearings. We'll have an internal appeal mechanism. So if you don't like it, you can go internally within the RTB to have another hearing. And in the meantime, we are going to stay the effect of any eviction order or anything like that while we're fleshing out whether this, uh, you know, is, whether this has been a fair and just um, basis to evict somebody. Well, all of a sudden, your residential tenancy process goes through a matter of six weeks, two months. That could be a year. That could be 18 months. Let's say you're a landlord and you've got a, a tenant who's trashing the place. But you have to let them stay for 18 months while, they're, while you're going through this um, extended process. Let's say you're a tenant and your landlord is unreasonably invading your privacy, is coming into your suite unannounced, all these sorts of things. You have to go for 18 months before you can get a remedy saying, stay out of the suite, landlord, you're not entitled to come in anymore. That would be an unfair result in substance and maybe even in process as well. You would have swung too far and you would have undermined the basic function and idea of the statute. 
So you want to have in mind this tension. When you deny somebody a procedural right that they claim, an oral hearing, uh, you may not just be sort of mean and stingy. You may, in fact, be doing something that's necessary in order to uphold the operation of the broader scheme. There's a push and pull. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. Um, you know, an example that we're going to explore more fully, and I, you know, it's, it's a really hard one, but um, the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project was reviewed by the National Energy Board. And they had this process whereby people who were interested in the um, approval or not approval of the project could apply to be what was called interveners at the National Energy Board. And the interveners included you know, First Nations, members of parliament, like Elizabeth May went in her own capacity to intervene. And so one of the initial questions was, well, what are the rights of the interveners going to be? They decided, yes, they are going to get to see the documents that are submitted. But they decided, no, there's going to be no right to cross-examine Trans Mountain Pipeline's uh, witnesses or experts on anything in those documents. And the costs of not allowing that cross-examination on the search for truth, I think were apparent. There were absolute contradictions in the evidence things that just didn't make logical sense, and there was no opportunity for these interveners to explore those things. But there was like 100 interveners. How do you possibly give each intervener a right to cross-examine every witness? How would that work? I don't think it would. Is there room for a creative solution of sort of like an amicus to do the cross-examinations? You know, I think there was. Something could have been worked out. But the tension between having an optimal process to you know, have the most fairness afforded and having a workable process that's going to not undermine the basic functioning of the tribunal is a real tension to keep in mind. All right, so the next thing, I do like the book chapter on this quite a bit. Um, I like the book talking a bit about the value of fairness. I think this is the sort of um, more theoretical idea that you don't really get when you just read the cases. You have to go to the sort of texts to, and commentary to get a discussion of this type of a thing. But it's a valuable idea to have in your mind as you're arguing for procedural fairness, you know, for an expansion of procedural fairness. Because I think as a lawyer, you tend to think usually in terms of the sort of truth-seeking value of procedural fairness, fairness as a means to an end. But the book does a good job of explaining if fairness is also an end in and of itself. The, a commitment to procedural fairness, a commitment to ensuring decisions are made in a fair and transparent manner, 
the book says, is a commitment to integrity in the exercise of public power. And it's a respect for the dignity of parties affected by state action. And this gets back to some sort of core ideas about the law. You know, justice needs to be seen, not just done, right? You've probably heard this before, but uh, you know, the most important person in the courtroom or in any dispute is the losing party. And if you can convince the losing party that they have had a fair day in court, um, you know, that's good decision making. That's really impressive. If they say, look, I lost, I don't like it, but I accept it, you know, my goodness, you've done a good job as a judge. Um, you know, I worked for this judge who really got that, Judge, judge Hall of the BC Court of Appeal. It's a, sort of a, just a little side story, but it, maybe it resonates in this. There was this vexatious litigant, and you'll, you know, as you move out of law school and you start practicing, or some of you, you know, take a chance to clerk, you'll certainly come across these vexatious litigants, these frequent flyers who come to the court over and over and over again on every little dispute. And there's this big tension between, they're obviously a strain on the resources, they're obviously causing great harm to the people who are the essentially victims of their repeated court processes. But can you really bar them from the courts? Can you say you can't seek justice? Because sometimes these are very marginalized people, and sometimes these are people who really do have bad things done to them. So the big tension, this person was a, a realtor who just had a vexatious sort of vendetta against this one person. And she came to the BC Court of Appeal Chambers and just talked at Judge Hall for 30, 45 minutes. And he's just sitting there writing down everything that she says. And she finishes, he looks up, he's like, is there anything else you'd like to say to me today? Another 20 minutes, he's just writing, 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 writing. He looks up and he's like, anything else? She's like, 10 more minutes, let's keep going. Keeps writing, and then he's like, is there anything else you need to say? And she's like, no, that's it, and I'm so thankful. Like, I've been trying to get someone to listen to me for years, and you finally listened to me. And so I said to him, I was like, oh, that was, that was interesting. So you actually listened to her, and you satisfied her. He's like, no, I wasn't listening to her. He's like, I was writing my reasons for dismissing her thing. <laughs> but the effect was she was very happy. He was wise. There was, her thing was hopeless, like hopeless. So he like had it, he's like, can you type this up? <laughs> but the, uh, but the, the result was good for her, you know, in a sense that she, she wasn't going to win, but she felt hurt. Um, and so there's a, an example. I mean, is that fair? <laughs> Maybe not exactly. But the, the point lands, I think, that um, you need to feel like you were hurt. You need to feel like justice was done. And if you could imagine a hypothetical justice system that always got the right answer, but never told you why, and never gave you a chance to explain why you think you should get a particular answer, you know, I think people would be less satisfied with that than a system that got the answer right usually, but gave you a chance to express yourself and to understand why a decision was being made in one way or the other. I think that is the inherent value of fairness. Even if it um, 
is it necessary to get to the right result or a result that would be upheld as reasonable? There is still an inherent value of it in and of itself. All right, so we'll talk about when a duty of procedural fairness is owed. Um, and the book has a bit of a history, and I don't want to get too lost in these sort of historical lessons about how admin laws developed, but I think they are helpful to touch on briefly, um, in, in part because you, know, you really are jumping in in the middle of a story. This is an area of law that is being developed sort of in real time before our eyes, and while it can feel like admin law is like contract law or tort law, it really isn't. Like those areas of law, you could plunk a lawyer from you know 1880 into a contract dispute today, and they'd be like, oh, SAFA is an interesting case, and that might be the only one they care about. Like there's, it's, it's basically the law is more or less the same. But if you take an administrative, you know, a lawyer who is concerned with uh, executive power in 1880 and put them in today, they, they would know nothing. Like, it's entirely new. Um, and it really has developed in the last 30 or 40 years. So these historical lessons are interesting, but I don't want you to worry too much about them. Um, but the historical lesson the book tells is a duty of fairness was owed um, at first, only when there is sort of quasi-judicial decisions being made. And when there's purely administrative decisions being made that didn't resemble a judicial um, determination in any way, there is no fairness or natural justice duty owed. Then there was a distinction between administrative decisions, which attracted a duty of fairness, and quasi-judicial decisions which attracted natural justice, a standard of natural justice. And then people were like, I don't even know what the difference is. Like, they were kind of like, this is, this is confusing. And so they did away with that distinction and said, okay, all of these decisions are subject to a duty of fairness, but the content of that duty of fairness will vary in the circumstances and will tend to be at its highest in these sort of quasi-judicial decisions. We're going to come back to that. That's Baker, so don't, I'm just kind of prefiguring that. So that's sort of the, you have this history that gets to this place of fairness is always owed and its content will vary in the circumstances. And then you have an important sort of clean articulation of when a duty of fairness is owed in the Supreme Court of Canada's case of uh, Cardinal, Cardinal and Kent. It's an excerpt in your book, and it's in the notes, but it says, every public authority making an administrative decision which is not of a legislative nature and which affects the rights, privileges, or interests of an individual will owe a duty of fairness. So it applies to every public authority making an administrative decision that is not of a legislative nature and which affects the rights, privileges, or interests of an individual. So in essence, you can think, am I affected by this? 
is this really a legislative rulemaking decision? If no, I'm affected, and it's not a legislative decision, then yes, I'm at least within, I'm in the game. I'm, there's a duty of fairness owed. What the content will be, that's the Baker question. Which I'm still kind of moving towards setting up. So the next point, and I've touched on this already, but what's the consequence for a breach of fairness? You know, and it's to set aside the decision. You've exceeded your jurisdiction in theory. You were never empowered to make this decision. Unfairly, you did. Can't stand. Where that's sort of controversial is people say, well, okay, court, you've now heard all about this case. We've maybe been talking about it for a week in this judicial review, or a few days at least. Can you just decide it? You know, now the person's been heard. Now they've told you their story. Can't you now just let, put an end to this matter? But this ties back into some of the ideas we discussed in the rule of law, that, well, it's not the court's role to make these decisions. They weren't empowered by the legislature to decide these issues. In fact, if there's a privative clause, they were you know, expressly told not to decide these issues by the legislature. Their job, again, this is that framing, is to police the jurisdictional boundary to see if you stepped outside of it. If you stepped outside of it, we set it aside, we quash it, and we send it back. And that's the remedy. It's a procedurally unfair decision. Ordinarily, we're going to quash it, set it aside, search URI, send it back. Even if the decision on its face seemed reasonable. What does that mean from the litigant's perspective? You might have won a very empty victory. You might go back, you might get your oral hearing, and you might get the exact same result over again. And then there's sort of a, well, thanks for playing. You know, you helped the great project of fairness in the administrative law context, but you're still evicted. You know, it's, it's not a great result for the client to win a procedural fairness argument, but to lose the sort of battle to get the administrative result they're seeking. So as a practice point, when you have a client who comes with a procedural fairness question, even if it's a good one, even if it, you, you got a good procedural fairness point, you want to be very upfront with them on their chances of actually getting a different substantive result if that's what they're after. Some fairness issues really will compromise the ultimate result. If you had just heard my explanation for why I was able to use the slicer. You understand it's got nothing to do with me not being injured. And so if I could tell you that, you'd, you'd change your mind. You know, that's the type of fairness argument that you might want to run. But if you say, well, okay, if you had this right, what would you have told them differently? 
And they say, oh, I don't know. Well, th that's not going to be the sort of thing that's going to necessarily be um, smart to run. And no matter how uh, annoyed your client is, you know, the best advice might be, listen, let this one go if it's not, you know, a life or death matter. Figuratively, life or death. Um, furthermore, you want to remember that on a procedural fairness argument, just like any other argument, even if you can show there is unfairness, still have to get over that hurdle of the discretionary nature of remedies and judicial review. There's still a chance the court can say you waited too long or there's some other reason why we're not going to exercise our discretion to grant a remedy here. All right, so any questions? Question. Yeah. Uh, on the, on the statement you made before, uh, when an administrative agency or whoever comes to give you fairness, so here based on the lecture and the textbook, it's only the Baker's case, so the factors determine the Baker's to trigger or raise that threshold questions for administrative procedural fairness. Yeah, that's in the Cardinal case. It is mentioned in the book. Um, it's actually a bit later in the, um, I jumped ahead, it's a little later in the reading that they have that quote from Cardinal. But that's that, that question of whether, and actually I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back to it in a second. Uh, uh, my question was, yeah. like, is it the only threshold question or the trigger, or, or the case that triggers a procedural fairness because compared to other textbooks, textbooks, uh, we have other uh, questions or triggers as well for procedural fairness. For example, the uh, NARC the Indian Head School Division case has way more comprehensive laid out factors for uh, triggering the procedural fairness question. And also uh, the Charter and Bill of Rights question is not discussed here. As well, the emergency the legislative decision issue, not, which also raises the question of Fairness is not discussed here. The only thing we are focusing here uh, is the legitimate uh, expectation question, which comes out of the Baker's case. So I was wondering if we are going to discuss those other uh, triggers as well or not. Oh, there's a, a lot in there. Um, so legitimate expectations is, a, is just a different concept. We're getting legitimate expectations soon. The Triggering of a duty to fairness, yes, cardinal is the test you want to look at. Is there a um, is there an administrative decision which is not of a legislative nature and that affects the rights, privileges, or interests of an individual? Um, Canadian Bill of Rights and Charter, separate issue, whether those are triggered, we'll get into that later. Um, the Masquean Indian Head case um, I'm not certain what the expansion is on Cardinal um, or the nuance that's worked out there, but I'm glad you raised that. And let me have a read through that um, for next class and I'll, I'll see if I can answer that more thoroughly. <coughs> Any other questions? All right. 
So where I'm at now is um, just noting how the book ties in the rule of law and procedural fairness in a, in a nice way. Um, and I think a nice way, especially when you conceive of a broader rule of law, um, Lord Bingham, the trial lawyer's case that uh, it talked about barriers to access being an impediment to the rule of law, right, the hearing fees. And if you think about access as a fundamental component of the rule of law, you know, McLaughlin, well-tailored process can increase access to justice. Bringing these processes down in a way that is fair and accessible absolutely can increase access to justice. And the author makes the point that procedural matters are all matters of access. And I'm not sure I totally agree with that. I think there may be some more nuance to it. But I think the, the idea that procedural matters are often or mostly uh, concerned with access absolutely stands. And it's a good thing to have in your mind. But you want to remember, of course, well-tailored is the important part. And if you're making these procedural um, obligations too onerous, it can backfire for access. The author also just ties process generally into the rule of law. And so by having legal requirements of process and then holding actors accountable when they violate those requirements of process, the author also suggests are further in the rule of law. And then the author also makes a good point, and this is an idea that we're gonna come back to a lot when we talk about Vavilov, but it also comes up in Baker. And it's this idea of a culture of justification. It's the idea that when a decision maker, when a member of the executive exercises power over an individual, they should expect as a matter of course, they have to justify that. They have to give a reason, explain why they've done that. That helps transparency. That helps people accept you know, the decisions that have been made to affect them. And it also just makes for better decisions. Like if I say to you, um, I, got, I have kids, right? The kids say, what are we gonna do? This. What's the dreaded question that's coming next? You know, why? Oh God. So it, it does force you to question your assumptions, question your motives, think through the actual relevant factors, Ensure that you can at least articulate the reasoning for your decision in a way that makes sense to yourself. And that will lead to better decision-making processes. Now, you often hear about, or I've heard, um, judges sort of bemoan a situation where they've had a... You ever see this where a judge gives a, a decision with reasons to follow? You're familiar with that idea? You'll say, okay, I know this is important. You win, you lose, my reasons are coming out in a month. And the judge will then go to write the reasons and think, holy crow, there is actually more to the other side's argument than I, than I initially realized. 
And, you know, especially, let's say you have a, a really charismatic, good lawyer on one side, and you've got a curmudgeonly, you know, old dude who's just, you just don't like being in the same room as him on the other side. It's going to be so easy to just want to, you know, in the room, go with the, go with the one you like. Uh, but then you get into it, and you're like, geez, the, the, the charismatic submission doesn't really hold up on close examination. So requiring justification, requiring reasons, and ideally requiring reasons at the same time as a decision can lead to better reasoning, better outcomes. Um, so that actually leads me to a bit of a side point. Uh, I think an important but somewhat tricky side point. And that is the difference between a duty to provide reasons and review of the adequacy of those reasons. So what you'll see in a number of cases, and especially starting with Baker, is a finding that a decision maker had a duty to provide reasons. But a duty to provide reasons should not be confused with review of the sufficiency or adequacy of those reasons. Because that review of the reasoning process is a substantive question. Whether you get reasons at all is a procedural question. So reasons have this procedural and substantive component. You could make an argument that you need to give me some explanation for why you're doing this. This is a decision of sufficient importance that demands reasons. You're in the fairness world. You can make an argument that when I read your reasons, they don't make any sense. Then you're in a substantive world. So there's a, there's a distinction there to be, um, to be drawn, and hopefully that is clear enough. Um, the book has a nice passage from um, Roderick MacDonald about fairness as inherently contextual. I think I drew from that in my sort of introduction, so I'm not going to go further into that, but there is sort of a, there's a way into some of that thinking if you have a look at the footnotes and some of MacDonald's work on fairness. Um, the next thing I want to get at is the two most fundamental procedural rights under which almost everything else falls, apart from, I think, the duty to provide reasons and perhaps some duty to issue timely decisions. And there's two Latin maxims, and I don't often like Latin maxims, as you may have noticed, I'm not good at pronouncing them, and I don't, I don't think they're accessible and helpful. But these are ones that you're going to see, so you got to know. So you've got Audi, oops, Alteram, Pardon. And 
Nemo Judex in Sua Causa. If you look at some old admin law cases, you'll even see these described as the only procedural rights that exist are these two. Audi alter impartum literally means hear the other side. Nemo judex and sua causa means um, you cannot be a judge in your own cause. This nemo judex fundamentally that's bias. That's a prohibition on a biased decision maker. We're going to touch a little bit on bias on Friday, and then we have a whole bunch of it on Tuesday. Bias is a really interesting and difficult question with a lot of nuance. And it's an argument that you're going to be asked to make a lot. Like almost everybody who really disliked a decision maker was, that person was biased against me. But there's a lot of constraints to, to arguing bias properly. But on the flip side, you know, you need to know where bias arguments can be brought because there are biased decision makers and you may be able to prove it. And if you can, you ought not to be scared off by all this law saying it's really hard to prove bias. We're going to get into that. Audi Ultra Impartum, though, is sort of the wellspring for a whole lot of procedural rights. And when you think about a whole lot of procedural rights, they really are about either knowing the case to meet or being afforded an opportunity to meet it. And those are the two components that go into hearing the other side. You want to think Audi Ultra Impartum, know the case, and have an opportunity to meet it. So if you want to hear the other side, the other side needs to be informed and need to have an opportunity to speak, or at least to present their views in some, in some fashion. So when you think about that, spectrum of fairness I was talking about, starting at on the far side, just notice and an opportunity to make some kind of submission. But that's the bare minimum that would be necessary to satisfy Audi Alter and Partum. That's the bare minimum to know the case and have a chance to meet it. But when you're asking for more disclosure, you're asking for a chance to cross-examine, you're asking for a chance to present your own testimony, you're asking for a chance to make oral submissions. You're asking for more and more and more rights that are getting at your ability to know the case and have an opportunity to meet it. So most of these procedural rights we're talking about, you can, um, you can find within or fit within the maxim of Audi Alterum Partum. All right, so let's take our, our morning break there. And we'll get back and talk about the sources of procedural rights, and then we'll 
get into the Baker case as a bit of an introduction. All right, let's get back to it. Um, the book makes an interesting observation that you can see fairness in two ways obligations and entitlements, that you can think of a procedural fairness uh, issue as either being framed as something the tribunal is obliged to do, or alternatively something that the person appearing before that tribunal has a right to receive. And the book makes a point that you may want to bear this in mind in your advocacy, and at least you want to think about which, almost which tense are you using? Are you going to frame it as my right or your obligation? Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting point to, uh, to think about the, the dynamic of there's, a, there's a, you know, two actors in this interaction. Um, so minor point, but I wanted to flag it just as you know, a framing, a lens that you may want to keep with you when you do your advocacy. What I really want to get into, though, are the sources of procedural rights. So you get over that bare minimum hump of um, being affected by an administrative decision that's not legislative in nature. And now we're getting into, well, what rights you know, am I going to be looking at obtaining? And Baker is hugely important for that. But uh, a theme throughout this course that I, I keep hitting on, I think, is we have to start with the statute, start with the legislation. Because when you think about what we're doing, we're making sure you stay within your jurisdiction. And so what is the jurisdiction? Well, it comes from the statute. It's the right place to start. And it can be tricky to, to piece this all together. I am going to start with an extremely hard one. Um, this is not, it's not usually going to be this tricky as the Canada Energy Regulator to figure out where the different sources of procedural obligations may lie within the statutory framework but it can show you the extent of the complexity. And so when your person comes with an issue, the first thing you want to do is figure out you know, what administrative tribunal is at issue, and then plug it into Google, right? So you want to start with Canada Energy Regulator. And don't let your client see you're Googling it. It <laughs> doesn't look good. Um, and inevitably, you're going to see like a, their, their, their landing page. And it's probably not going to be extremely helpful. Oftentimes, it's a bit of sort of puffing up their, their, who they are, what they do. But when you look, where did I find this? Give you a little, little bit of poking around, I should have had this set up. See, there's there, okay, it's, it can be a little tricky. Somehow I got to this page. 
<laughs> this is the type of page, this, so it would be under about us. Yeah, okay. Who we are and what we do. Acts and regulations, okay. List of acts and regulations. Usually you'll find, if you poke around on their website, you'll find something that says, these are the acts that guide our work, okay? The Canada Energy Regulator, it's, it's, it's almost overwhelming because you see the Canada Energy Regulator, and this is the entity that regulates pipelines, among other things. Its mandate, responsibilities, and powers are established under the, this act, the, the Canada Energy Regulator Act, the old National Energy Board Act, which is repealed. But we'll see how some of its, uh, it still has effective, um, still has effect for a Canada Energy Regulator process. The Oil and Gas Operators Act, the Petroleum Resources Act, the Oil and Gas Operations Act, and the Petroleum Resources Act. And then other acts, the Access Information Act, the Impact Assessment Act is a very important one. So you're seeing all these different acts which all combine to give the Canada Energy Regulator its mandate, responsibilities, and powers. And you have to start going through these acts to see what do they say about the process that's going to be afforded. And you get into the Canada Energy Regulator Act and it is huge. Like it is um, 300 sections or something like that. So then you would search you know, for hearings. Um, you'll see the, if, a, if this sort of statement is filed, you know, they must order a public hearing be held. These types of issues, um, you know, when must you have a hearing? you want to look for. Um, then you see you know, the tri there, there's a tribunal that's created, the Canada Energy Regulator Tribunal. And then you see rules about where the hearings must be conducted, the powers of the tribunal, the rules of evidence that are going to be at that tribunal that a tribunal may require someone to undergo examinations, a medical examination to go before the Canada Energy Regulator, I guess if you're saying you've been injured by a pipeline operation. You have contemplation of written submissions, you have a right to make their own rules. So you're seeing all these sources of potential procedural rights within the Canada Energy Regulator Act itself. So that's the first place you go when you found the enabling statute, look through it, see what procedural rights are afforded, see which ones would resonate with your claimant. But that's not the end of it. So you see um, how the, this document, or this document, contemplates the Impact Assessment Act potentially having resonance. You go to the Canada Energy Regulator Act and you search for Impact Assessment Act, you'll see that 
if you have an application that is subject to an assessment under the, the Impact Assessment Act, then its powers, duties, and functions are to be performed by a panel established under that act. So you've gone from the Canada Energy Regulator Act now into the Impact Assessment Act, and you have to follow the processes of the Impact Assessment Act for the purpose of doing this. It's an environmental assessment in essence. You go to the Impact Assessment Act, and it has extensive procedural rights and, um, and rules set out for how you go about conducting an environmental assessment. Who gets to participate, in what form, oral hearings, duty to provide reasons, all of that is contemplated within the Impact Assessment Act. So when you're looking for the procedural, oops, sorry. When you're looking at the, um, at the statutes to understand the scope of the jurisdiction, you want to look at the procedure the statute requires. And you may have to go on an exercise of tracing through different statutes to understand the full scope of the procedural rights that the legislature explicitly demanded in legislation, exceeding which, of course, will exceed jurisdiction, failing to follow which may exceed jurisdiction. That's not the end of it, far from it. Because both, in this example, the Canada Energy Regulator Act and the Impact Assessment Act have a regulation-making provision that empowers the minister to make regulations that further govern the practice and procedure at this tribunal. So if you go to the Canada Energy Regulator Act, back on the website, you'll notice it tells you Regulations made under the National Energy Board Act, that's the repealed National Energy Board Act, the predecessor to the Canada Energy Regulator Act, remain in force under the Canada Energy Regulator Act. So now I realize, okay, I've got to look at regulations made under the Canadian or the Impact Assessment Act, the Canada Energy Regulator Act, and the National Energy Board Act to understand the process that may be required. Then I find that under the National Energy Board Act, they have a regulation called the Rules of Practice and Procedure. If I want to know the process that's going to be afforded to me at a hearing before the Canada Energy Regulator, knowing that regulations from the National Energy Board remain in force, and knowing that there is this Rule of Practice and Procedure, well, boy, this is going to be an absolutely key document, right? I have to get to this. And these regulations, of course, have the force of law. They're passed pursuant to a power explicitly provided in statute. And so a violation of these regulations could cause the board to exceed its jurisdiction, to lose jurisdiction. These are long and detailed. There's a whole lot to it. It's almost like a rule of court rules of court. 
you know, no communication between counsel and a witness and a cross-examination. It gets into very precise detail of the process that's expected to be followed. So we're in the, you know, we're, we're looking at the trees here, but zooming out to the forest, you want to think, again, what am I looking at? I'm looking at the enabling statute. I'm looking at other related legislation that may affect the jurisdiction of this tribunal. And then I'm looking at the regulations. These are all sources of potential procedural rules or guidance as to what procedures must or should be followed. And you'll quite often see there's a lot of discretion afforded right in the legislation or right in the regulations. The uh, tribunal may hold an oral hearing. It may permit cross-examination, this type of a thing. Well, if they've been given a choice as to whether or not to do it, we'll get there, but you may still be able to argue in your circumstances that they, uh, they had to. But it's going to be a much different argument than if it says must. You'd be surprised at the scope of discretion that's often afforded. So big picture, what are the sources you're looking at? Statute and regulations. But that's not all. There's one other source. One other source of, of these rules and procedures that come right from the tribunal itself. And these are guidelines. What you'll find is Quite a few of the more sophisticated and complex tribunals have set out a wide array of practice direction, guidelines, guidance to litigants, these types of documents that set out what type of process or what type of procedure you could expect when you appear before the tribunal. Canada Energy Regulator, for example, they have this filing manual. A filing manual sets out in great detail what they're looking for you to provide when you're participating in one of their hearings in various different ways. These guidelines that are issued by the body themselves, by the National Energy Regulator, these do not have force of law in the same way that a statute or a regulation does. They are created by that executive body, that tribunal itself, and they're not traceable back to parliament or the provincial legislature in the same way a statute obviously is and a regulation is because it's passed pursuant to a statutory power. These are the tribunal themselves trying to set guidance to, to assist litigants. And so you have a different argument if one of these guideline documents is not followed. A different argument than you would 
if the legislation was violated or a regulation was violated. I'll get to that in a second when I talk about legitimate expectations and how that works. But what you want to know right now for big picture is there are these three different places you might find an explicit procedural right provided. The legislation, regulations, or guidelines. Now if you were to look, let's say you were to go to the, uh, you want to see the Residential Tenancy Act. I think that this computer thinks we're in Ontario. It's weird, like the Google always strongly starts with um, Ontario. So you'll see, like for example, the Residence Tenancy Branch sets out guidelines for landlords and tenants. Um, you'll also see that the Residential Tenancy Act has practice directions. Should have found these ahead of time. They can be hard to find. Like that's, you have to poke around a bit and poke around on their website. But there's, there's these detailed um, practice guidelines for the Residence Tenancy Act that get into what to expect at a hearing. And so what I want to get to on these guidelines is if you have something like the filing manual. This is not a statute. This is not a regulation. This is created by the National Energy Board. The most common way to argue that this must be followed is through the doctrine of legitimate expectations. Legitimate expectations is the idea that if a tribunal leads you to fairly believe that a particular process will be followed, it may be unfair and indeed so unfair to be outside of jurisdiction to not follow that process. And so let's take, for example, under the filing manual, And let's say we were uh, planning on submitting an um, application for approval for a physical project. And let's say we were to go through this filing guidance and we were to comply with everything that is said in this. We, we, would, we address what the project is, including all of this, where it's located, how it will be carried out, the cost. We, we, we go through every single one of these and address, 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 address. And then we get to the hearing and they say, uh, you know, Mr. Pulley, like your, uh, your, your, your filing is inadequate. It didn't address this, this, and this. And I say, well, those are nowhere to be found in the filing guidance. And they say, well, we don't care. That's not binding on us. 
your thing is booted and your, your client's out of time to bring this application now. Is that fair? You know, probably not. They've given me a legitimate expectation that if I comply with those requirements, they will hear my, my application for an approval. But it's not risen to the level of force of law. Rather, it's going to be a contextual fairness analysis. They might say, Mr. Pulleyblank, while indeed this thing on our websites you know, implies that that would be sufficient, um, did you not receive a letter from um, you know, the secretariat at the tribunal saying that we needed this and this? You'd say, yes, I did, but it wasn't, I was relying on, on this, this guideline. They'd say, no, that, <laughs> you, you knew what we needed, you chose not to give it. So they would look at the full context and determine, the court would look at the full context to determine whether in those circumstances it was indeed fair to boot my application, you know, despite complying with this filing guide, guidance. It's entirely different from if the statute said the regulator must process a um, application if it includes this, this, and this. You wouldn't have that same contextual fairness analysis. You'd just say, oh, you didn't comply with the statute. It's a problem. So that's the distinction between the guidelines and the statutes or regulations. Does that all make sense? I have a question. Yeah. So the reason that takes on this uh, discussion, uh, and also reading the Aguera of the Canada case, uh, I was a bit confused what the court the court said that the minister he followed the guidelines. That was a reading from Mr. Aguera, but this is not clear uh, if the court gave the same weight to the regulations and uh, guidelines, or if it was just because to answer the question of the minister followed the Yeah, and I think the book even says hey, this is a bit of attention. It seems like they didn't follow the same approach. It's not a very area. Yeah, and that, I'm glad you asked that question because I think when you practice administrative law, you're going to run into this a lot where you have these, this principle and this theoretical framing that, that makes sense and is defensible and it's just frankly not always followed. So in Agrera, the court really seemed to treat the guidelines as legally binding and a failure to follow them as you know, a complete um, basis for the applicant to succeed. Now, if you were to ask the court later to reconcile that with the jurisprudence saying that guidelines are not legally binding and in fact you're talking about legitimate expectations, they would likely have said, Yes, no, in Agrera, it was just so clear that it was unfair to not follow the guidelines that that is what the court did. And they may not have said that, but that was implied. I think that's the way they would reconcile that, to say Agrera, in fact, was done within legitimate expectations, fairness, context. It wasn't a case of elevating guidelines to a legally binding status because that doesn't make sense. The tribunal themselves can't create legally binding guidelines. Um, but you are going to run into these inconsistencies in approach in administrative law, which are going to be infuriating. And my, 
like the best administrative lawyer that I know is my wife. She's so good at this stuff. And she inevitably goes to a hearing and she's learned that when she, um, she gets going and the judge says, hey, I know about administrative law, you know, counsel. Uh, let's, let's move on. And she'll say, great, okay, continuing right where I was because inevitably they don't. They, they often don't understand administrative law as much as they think they do or they forget these big picture relational concepts. And frankly, teaching is a great way to remember them, but in the practice, you don't spend that much time at the high level and you can really forget how the whole project is supposed to work together. And there are so many different moving parts, it's easy to kind of forget where you are in the broader scheme, the broader context. And so um, administrative law really requires that you internalize these theoretical concepts, uh, be ready to argue from them, and then be also adaptable and ready to recognize that in practice, you're gonna run into courts who apply them inconsistently, or even sometimes just it looks like wrongly to me. So um, I think at the outset of the course, I tried to suggest that there is a, a strange tension in administrative law where it's the most theoretical and also the most practical at times. And I think that that kind of lands in even the Supreme Court of Canada level, you'll have these things that really seem like mistakes. And I mean, the, the book calls them out for it. They're not the first to suggest there's an inconsistency in that agrarian approach. So, so given the same way to uh, internal policy or, or guidelines, is just a very specific case? It's not like a precedent for other cases? Well, yeah, it wouldn't be a precedent to say that guidelines are now legally binding at all. It would be a precedent to say, in Agrera, they found a failure to follow these guidelines made this tribunal lose its jurisdiction. Uh, but you would be able to make arguments that um, in, in other cases, let's say there was an express notice given that these guidelines were no longer followed, but the guidelines weren't formally rescinded. I'm sure you'd have a different case, a different analysis, and it'd be done It's a great question though, and it's, it's a tricky, tricky area. And that does bounce me into the next point I wanted to make, which is this idea of why, why not? If the, if the tribunal says that we are going to follow this procedure, why not hold them to that and say it's necessarily unfair to not follow that procedure? And that gets back to the question of, well, there's, there's sort of a range of, um, of fairness in a sense, and there's, there's an imperfect process. Is it great that you said you're gonna follow a process in one place, but maybe represented you're not gonna follow that process in another place? Is that ideal? No. But does that go so far as to make you lose jurisdiction? to render your decision outside the scope of what the legislature gave you the power to do? Well, that's a more tricky question. And this gets in this idea of fettering, fettering your discretion. This is a tricky concept we're gonna come back to. But in essence, it means that if you're given jurisdiction by the legislature, you can't artificially narrow or refuse to exercise that jurisdiction of your own accord. You can't say, 
thanks but no thanks. I'm not going to hear that kind of case. I'm not going to decide that kind of issue. I'm not going to hear that kind of evidence. I'm not going to let that kind of person come before me. To, to fetter means to constrain. And there is this long-standing principle against allowing a tribunal to artificially constrain its jurisdiction in a way that's not contemplated by the legislation. So if you go to the court and you say, ah, there's this guideline, they didn't follow it, and a failure to follow it makes them lose jurisdiction, and the court says, well, that guideline, I mean, it's a minor point. The tribunal did it itself, and it's not followed it consistently, and you knew it didn't follow it consistently, and you were told it wasn't going to necessarily follow it here. They might say, I don't think that the legislature would have intended to say that it lost its jurisdiction. At most, you're arguing that the tribunal itself constrained its jurisdiction, but you're just making a fettering argument, and I won't accept a fettering argument. So that's kind of the theory behind why a guideline doesn't necessarily need to be followed. It may not go so far as to cause you to lose jurisdiction and to treat it as a binding rule that must be followed could result in fettering the jurisdiction, fettering the discretion of that tribunal in a way the legislature never intended. It's a tricky question. We're going to come back to fettering. Are there any questions about that, though? Okay. So one more place I need to go to before getting um, into, well, I was hoping to get into a preview of Baker. We may not get there today, but that's fine because we have the whole case for next class and we could easily spend the whole next class on Baker. But just, I, I'm, I'm really bouncing between the forest and the trees quite a bit. Let's get back to forest. Really big takeaways from this second half of the lecture look to the legislation, look to the regulations, look to the guidelines, but be aware that there is a distinction between the guidelines and the legislation and regulations, and that the failure to follow the guidelines may not lead to a remedy. You'd have to frame it within legitimate expectations, which probably we're now going to get more into next class than this class, as I originally hoped. But now let's talk about one other place you need to go, one other place you need to look. And this is outside of the specific enabling statute, the Canada Energy Regulator Act, or uh, the Residential Tenancy Act, Workers' Compensation Act. And that is generally applicable legislation governing administrative decision makers. I've mentioned in British Columbia, there's these two statutes that we're gonna to have to you know, have in mind when we think about administrative law. The Judicial Review Procedure Act and the Administrative Tribunals Act. 
I talked a bit about the Judicial Review Procedure Act in the context of talking about those remedies, those certiorari mandamus remedies and about how the writs, the equitable writs, you used to have to frame your case within have been displaced by statute and now you go under the Judicial Review Procedure Act. Now I want to talk about the Administrative Tribunals Act, which sets out a range of practices and procedures that may be adopted by a tribunal. And the key is this act works only if it's specifically invoked within the statute that creates the tribunal. I'll show you what I mean in a second. It's an opt-in model, in essence. There are other general statutes, like one we'll come to later in the course, the Canadian Bill of Rights, that apply whether or not the enabling statute says they do. They, they are generally applicable. The Administrative Tribunals Act is one of these opt-in general, general pieces of legislation, but where it applies, it's tremendously important. So when you deal with British Columbia tribunals, I always want to know if you have a federal or a provincial tribunal, obviously. When you have a British Columbia tribunal created under provincial legislation, the first thing you want to do, or one of the first things you want to do, is consider does the Administrative Tribunals Act apply? So if I go to the Workers' Compensation Act, you'll see there's a specific section called the Application of the Administrative Tribunals Act to Appeal Tribunal. You may remember me discussing how there's both the lower level decision and then the appeal, internal appeal within the workers' compensation scheme. The ATA applies only on the appeal level. And you see the following provisions apply to the appeal tribunal, not the whole thing but these various sections, and if you're in this procedural fairness frame of, of mind, you want to see what, what in part four of the Administrative Tribunals Act is going to apply, because that's a part of the practice and procedure. And you see 11, 13, 14, 15, 28. So you'd go to it and say, okay, well, what does 11 say? Okay, there's a general power to make, um, you know, to make practice and procedure. But they say, okay, what about a practice directive tribunals make? Well, wait a second, I don't think 12 applied. Oh no, it didn't. So I can skip that one. Then I see directives the tribunal may make. So I realize that, you know, there's um, the contemplation of, of some practice directions that must be made. Some tribunals, I guess, must make them. But the tribunal I'm concerned with only has a, a power, a discretion to make them. So it wouldn't be outside of the statute not to make one, I guess. You keep going like that. Um, 
you see, you know, Section 28, facilitated settlement. So, okay, there is a power to conduct a settlement process to resolve a dispute. Interesting. You know, you, you keep going and going through this, and you'll see a range of practices or procedures that either will be allowed to be made or that must be made as a result of the Administrative Tribunals Act. So, like coming back to your big picture framework, you've got the enabling statute, you've got the regulations, you've got the guidelines, and then you've got to get to the, um, the general regulate, the general act, the Administrative Tribunals Act in BC, perhaps the Canada Bill of Rights for a federal tribunal. All of those things should give you a sense as to the sort of outer limits of the jurisdiction they are inevitably going to leave a lot of questions. Those outer limits are going to be clear when the legislation or regulations say something in essence that is must or must not. Then you know, okay, do I get an oral hearing? Uh, the, the legislation says they must not hold an oral hearing. Okay, that's not, that's not a fruitful avenue. So you get a sense as to the outer bounds of what you're talking about, right? But you're going to have a lot of things that either are not addressed in the statutes or regulations or are allowed but not required in the statutes or regulations. And so to fill in the details of the perimeter of this jurisdiction, that's where you need to look to the common law, and that's where you need to look to Baker in particular. That's Baker's role. Where there's not a statute that expressly allows or doesn't allow a process, when is fairness going to demand that process be, be followed? Are there any questions on that? All right, so I'll just briefly, briefly introduce Baker. Um, as I say, it's such an important case, and as a result, I'm, I'm certainly not um, worried that you both get a good discussion of it in the textbook, and you also are going to read you know, the entire case. It's not exceptionally long, and it really is quite important. Um, fundamentally, what you get with Baker is this idea that procedural fairness obligations exist on a spectrum. It goes from the bare minimum procedural protections, notice and an opportunity to make some kind of submission, up to the highest level protections, you know, leading expert evidence, cross-examination. In essence, what's going to look like a full court-like process. Baker tells you how to determine where you are on that spectrum. It gives you five factors that sort of move you to one side or the other along the spectrum. The factors are, I think, um, fairly clear in the case and are much better spelled out in further jurisprudence. They're well known and easy to identify and fairly easy to apply. But balancing five different factors to determine 
you know, on a borderline case, whether you get an oral hearing or not, incredibly difficult. So I want you to read Baker with that sort of fundamental framing in mind. They want to set out the spectrum and they want to set up the factors that will determine where you are along that spectrum, which of course determines what procedural rights you get. But I want you to think about you know, how workable, how predictable is this too fuzzy of a system as well. All right, thanks very much. So we'll, we'll stop there and we'll pick it up on Friday. <laughs>